Charlotte, North Carolina. Thunderous applause. I like that. <laughs> Thank you, Don. I'm Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. And I need to say, kind of nervous. You know, sometimes you get more nervous about some of these deals than you do others. And it's been a good two days. Uh, Don's just tended to my every need and just been a wonderful host. And whoever picked him did good uh, because he did. He did find me there in the airport because I looked lost and looked like I was looking for him. I guess. And, <laughs> I want to say that I appreciate, and I do know Joe. Joe and I go back several years, and, I, and he has represented you folks quite well in our part of the country. He has said that this is mighty fine AA, and he told the truth. I like this place. This thing, it just smells like AA in here, and I mean it, you know. This is just, this may have, they built it as a funeral home or something, somebody told me, but God meant it for AA, I'm telling you. I was born in Greensboro, North Carolina. A couple of you have been nice enough to tell me that you've had some experience in North Carolina or got relatives in North Carolina and from my old stomping grounds. And I was born up in Guilford County almost 50 years ago when I was born in an alcoholic home. And that's important to me. I think with a lot of us, and a lot of us do come from similar backgrounds to mine, that's important in that we realize from very early age, and maybe we can't appreciate this, but we know in retrospect that alcoholism is a very powerful, powerful thing, and it, was, and it was in control of me and my family from my earliest memory. And it was my father's alcoholism, and uh, whether he was drinking or not, it was in control. It owned that family. Now, I was also raised a Southern Baptist, and I found out from Don, y'all know about that uh, <laughs> deal here. And you know that uh, they're not very complimentary to beverage alcohol, so... What I heard in my religious training and what I witnessed at home only gave me a negative viewpoint as far as alcohol was concerned. And I was sure, as you were probably sure if you came from a background similar to mine, that I'd never drink. I'd never, yeah, I knew what was making my father like that. We blamed everything on his drinking too, you know, families do. We'd be rich and famous or whatever. If Daddy just didn't drink, and I would compare to other families, and everybody just looked like Ozzy and Harriet to me. It was just a perfect <laughs> situation. Comparing my insides and the inside of our home to the outsides of other people and the outsides that I could see. And, and uh, you know, and, and life went on, and, and I got older, and I, and I had problems inside me. And I heard you talk about the problems inside you. And I couldn't share these problems I had with others. I just knew I had them. Now, I hadn't talked about this in a while, but I just feel like talking about peer pressure. Uh, I've gotten older now and I've learned technical terms like that. Or <laughs> Red Ladies Home Journal, a little lot of stuff like that that tells you about stuff like that. I, uh, I was in downtown Greensboro. I'd learned how to do, I'd cuss in a little bit, and I'd learned how to inhale, too. I, in my day, you, in, in my day, you just inhale just regular old tobacco. And I can remember learning how to get out there behind the school and take a big drag and inhale that. You'd arrive, sort of, you know, with smoking. <laughs> and I remember how I worked at that. In, inhaling didn't come naturally to me. I... <laughs> I wouldn't waste an inhale unless somebody was looking. I don't know if you ever did that or not. 
did buckle my knees, you know, and I, but I, we'd be standing around and I'd play it cool and take a big dragon inhale and grab a tree or something. So I was, you know, cussing a little bit and in, inhaling right regular and I was down, I was about 14 years old and I was downtown Greensboro. Back then people came to downtown Greensboro, that's changed a lot with all the shopping centers and everything, but that was when on Saturday afternoon everybody was out there and out in front of Manzo Henry Drugstore were three of the finest looking fellas I'd ever seen, boys a little older than me, three or four years older than me. And I don't know if in this part of the country uh, there's not many of you of my age group, so I know you won't know what I'm talking about, but even the ones that are of about my vintage, I don't know if this happened in this part of the country, but let me tell you how these boys looked. There were three of them. They had hair slicked back on the side. It was squared in the back and it met in the back. I later learned that was a duck tail. And the shirt collar stood straight up. And they wore the pants real low and they were real big at the knee and real little at the bottom. I, could, I was awestruck. And I made my way to somebody to say, what is that? And I was advised they were cats. That was the truth. Well, this was long before there was hippies or anything like this. These were cats. And I made it my business to become a cat as quick as I possibly could. I, and I went and I, and, I, and I let my hair grow and I got me a shirt and starched the collar and went and had some pants made with big knees and draped cuffs. Made my way down to Manzo Henry to be with us. But I had a little hair problem. Uh, my hair wasn't even real fine. It wouldn't, that was the days of wild root cream oil. I, I put a half a bottle on me, you know, and it just, it wouldn't work. To, you know, the wind would come up and just a whole lump of it would come out of so I, had, I had an advisor, I, I never will forget him, old Charles Deligny, who was sort of a, about a year ahead of me in becoming a cat. And he introduced me to a product called pomade. Uh, and there are some blacks in the room and I know this especially if my age you remember this product and, and that cured my hair problem I, uh, I know that you've probably seen this commercial for final net hairspray on television got the lady that goes through just a rough day all day and at the end of the day she falls asleep and she's pooped her hair is still in place and, and, <laughs> And they, they brag about that, you know, holding all day on these conditions. Pomade hold your hair for three months. <laughs> you combed it like you wanted it, let me tell you. <laughs> Train could hit you and if they found your head, be in trouble. Well, I made my way. I had pomade on my hair, and the, and the collar stood up, and, and the drape breeches, and made my way down there. Now, I don't need to tell you what the drug of choice was back in the 50s. We just knew about marijuana and this other stuff in the movies. They were drinking. And so a thing that called peer pressure was a bigger pull for me, a bigger, a more irresistible force, if you will, than this fear and guilt that I associate with beverage alcohol. And that was proven because I began to drink. So I didn't have any positive view of beverage alcohol except from that experience. I wanted to be accepted in this group. Now I dare say that about all of us start to drink for that reason. 
because other people are doing it that we want to be included in. I hear exceptions to that. I know some of you, the doctor puts you on a little wine for your stomach or something. But most of us, almost all of us, begin to use this drug, alcohol, because others we admire. And these were the cats, and I began to drink. And this was my social drinking period, and you have to listen real fast, because this didn't last long. I can't even remember how long it lasted. Might have been a month. It might have been four or five months. It was some period of time when I'd take a sip of this or a half a can of beer. And I was included, and I was doing it, and I was okay and tough enough and all this business. But it only lasted, this social drinking, until one night, and I think I was about 15 and a half years old, and we were down in the old downtown cemetery there in Greensboro where we'd go for privacy to do a lot of stuff. <laughs> and I ingested enough of a product called Old Mr. Mac Wine to feel for the first time what most of us in this room know is intoxication. I felt the effects of the drug. And I can promise you that I never drank again to out of peer pressure, I'd never drink again to be included, I'd never drink again for any other reason except to get again that feeling I got that night. Now what happened to me that night, and I've had the privilege of talking to quite a few different kinds of groups, and I never attempt to describe what that stuff did for me. Most of you know. It did something special for me. It put the world out where it belonged. It made me included. I was tough enough and smart enough and good-looking enough and all the things enough that I needed to be. What it did is it took the fear away. It made me unafraid. And so right then, without realizing, I was half an alcoholic. And if we were to believe what this book says, and I do, that it is a physical allergy coupled with a mental obsession, and I think that's a good workable definition, then the mental obsession was there that night. Physical allergy was going to take a little time, not long, but a little time. But that night, I was mentally obsessed, mentally hooked, half an alcoholic. Begin to lie right quick. Now, a drinking pattern set up right then. Had one of you professionals been out there observing me, you'd have seen something happen right then. I began to drink at every opportunity, and the opportunity was, weren't daily, it was like on weekends. I know now in retrospect that I began to look forward to drinking for drinking's sake. Very quickly, if we were going to a ball game or a party or whatever we were going to do, that was incidental because I was going to drink. And I was going to regain that feeling. And it worked every time. It put the world out where it belonged. It made me okay and enough, and it made the fear go away. Now, there was some mess in there. You know how that does to you. get a lot of vomiting until you learn to... <laughs> but we were all puking, you know, that kind of thing. It was no big deal, you know, just trying not to puke on each other. And, <laughs> and those were the good old days. You'd lie in reverse, you know. You'd drink six beers until everybody had 16, you know. <laughs> That changes, doesn't it? You know. <laughs> Drink forty until everybody had two. A little bit down the line. But those were the good old days of all doing it. And the guilt and the fear didn't leave. I still had that. And I had to lie to me, which we all have to do. And I had to tell myself, "Well, I'm not going to do this from now on." 
I'm just having a good time. I'm doing like these other boys. Well, I wasn't just having a good time. I was learning to rely on a drug, to cope, to be okay, to be part of, and all the things that we should be normally developing in my maturing process. But I kept saying out there somewhere, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. And life went on. You know, it does for us. It kind of, if you stand back far enough and watch us, even one of these quick ones like me, it looks about like a normal person, almost. You have to be way back, but I mean, if you're observing the life, it almost looks right, you know. I rocked along there, and out there somewhere, when I'm going to get rich and famous and settle down and all that, I'm going to quit this. That's what life went on. I even went to a little bit of college, just a little tiny bit. I know in retrospect how much of this ism affected or cut short any career I'd have had in, in military, but I, went, I mean in the uh, college, but I did go in the military. This is going to impress you, my military career. I'm just going to say a couple of things about it so that you know you're hearing from a professional tonight. That's always, I think, sounds good if you know you. <laughs> Somebody comes from a couple of states away, gives them sort of a license to be an expert. They made me... <laughs> a neuropsychiatric technician. <laughs> Ain't many of you can even spell that. That's one of those keepers in the nut house is what that is. Now, <clears throat> drinking, you know, I'm relying on this stuff pretty steady now. I'm in the Army now, and I tell you what got me in the Army. Me and old Bobby Sutton were drinking on the last bit of, we sold my sister's college books. And we're drinking a fifth of Old Mill Stream chasing it with Schlitz, and we said, this is it. And the next day, went out and joined the Army on the buddy system, and this is how I got to be a neuropsychiatric technician. Now, had you walked into the ward cold, uninitiated, the way you could tell the difference, the way you could tell who to back up against the wall with, the nuts wore blue pajamas. Us neuropsychiatric technicians wore whites. And we also jingled teeth. And they sent me through some training, and I learned just enough psychology to worry about it. I don't know if you had to... I'd if I'd hear about something, I'd have it, you know, just any kind of disease. And I learned... And they'd talk about schizophrenia and everything, and I'd know deep down, so, oh, my God, I feel like that. <laughs> well... <sighs> can't let them know, you know. Uh, and I'd stand around on that ward thinking I was going to have... We talked a little bit this weekend. I think I was talking to Don or somebody about this fear of panic attacks. You know, that fear of falling apart. And I'd be standing around and on the ward, thank you. And I'd be standing around on that ward thinking I was going to fly apart. And they switched my suit, uh, which would be embarrassing, you know, for my... <laughs> my buddies show up and I'm in the blue pajamas. <laughs> So I spent a lot of time walking around there as acting as sane as I possibly could. <laughs> now, 
but fear any moment somebody was going to be able to look in those eyes and say, this guy's as crazy as these people we're keeping. <laughs> I'm going to give you, if you will, uh, since some of you aspire to be professionals, I'm going to give you a quick bachelor's degree in, in this thing. You know, they've done a lot of studying of us. Million, billions of dollars have been spent researching us. You know, we have a disease. I think it's going to be battled in the Supreme Court, but thus far it is a bona fide disease. And so we're researching. A lot of government grants have come down to research us. Not one dime has been spent to study them, the non-alcoholics, if you don't. <laughs> So without a grant, I've taken it upon myself <laughs> to look into this. Now, good fortune has it that I am married to one of the worst cases of non-alcoholism you've ever seen. In this <laughs> I mean, this case is terminal, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I've observed her over the years, and she, especially with her drinking, and she's done a little drinking. And maybe three or four times in the 30 years we've known each other, she's taken up enough in to feel it. You know what she does? She stops. Turns your stomach, doesn't it? And, I, and this is, listen carefully, because this, as far as I'm concerned, is the only difference I've got to know between us and them. I've asked her on repeated occasions, why do you stop when you start to feel it? And she's, and because you know when you start to feel it, that's time to, you've lit the pile at the end, hell, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Why, why do you do that? And she says, because I, when I begin to feel it, I feel as if I'm losing control. And I don't like that feeling. Now, when I would leave that ward and Fred, I was going to fall apart and they would know I was just as crazy as nuts we were keeping and I would go up to the club that night and I'd start to drink for the first time that day, I'd have control. And every drink I would take beyond that would give me more and more control. It was the only control I had all day. It was the only control I had in my life. This very thing that makes my wife feel as if she's losing control was the only semblance of control I ever had. Now, things were happening to me and I don't need to tell you that. Alcohol was doing for me uh, something, as I said, I couldn't describe to any other body of people except groups like you, you know. But it was beginning to do the things to me. And what it does for us is what gets us in trouble with us, and what it does to us is what gets us here. And it started demanding its price. It always does, if we be alcoholic. Started developing real early amnesia. <laughs> didn't know it either you know I would think I had total recall <laughs> and somebody I would think would mix me up with somebody else I don't know if that ever happened to you <laughs> and they'd say God Crawford I don't know if I'd have done what you did last night <laughs> well hell I didn't even see him last night <laughs> People like that always got a witness to you. So you know it's you and you think, wow, my God, I forgot that. 
But I have to say to myself, well, everybody forgets. That's part of drinking. I started being less able to predict the amount I was going to drink. Now, I didn't know this was losing control. Now, you know, if you see it on one of these charts like this, you know, they call that losing control. I just knew that at times I had set out to drink a little bit and I didn't drink a little bit or drink a lot. Maybe didn't get home till late or didn't get... And by then, I've gotten married, too. We all got to do that, you know. Make it a family disease. And that, you know, and I'd done that in the army, married a, a childhood sweetheart, and, and started procreating and having a baby. And out of the army now and back to, you know, to get away from that pressure so I wouldn't be drinking so much. And these things were beginning to happen in spades. And that's when I was really, and that was happening long before this, but I was really losing control. I was becoming less and less able to predict my behavior. And it was becoming more and more antisocial. I was becoming hostile. And I was doing things and saying things that I shouldn't have said and done. Embarrassing things. And that's when the remorse and guilt began to set in. And all these things were at times pretty clear to me. Also, I started getting them hangovers too. I thought I had been having hangovers. I had been having hangovers like these social drinkers get hangovers. You hear... You know how you get those real ones, and it makes you look back fondly on those things you've been calling hangers. <laughs> if you want to remember how them things were, you wait till these non-alcoholics been out on amateurs' night like New Year's Eve or something. <laughs> Whenever those people drink, and they'll talk about that hangover, you know. kind of brag about it. You know. <laughs> Boy, I, you know, I drank six and a half drinks last night at the office party, you know. I, Got up this morning, my head was throbbing so bad I could barely eat my waffles. Well, that's a hangover <laughs> to them people. Yeah. You know that ain't a hangover at all. That's... <laughs> I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. You come to in just every fiber of your being. Well, what you are is your, your body and being is screaming for more of that drug, whether we realize it or not. And I started getting those things. And I knew that I was in a horrible fix. And every once in a while, those signals would go off even to me. Now, everybody else was noticing something was wrong with my drinking. And I was getting that from wives and, and bosses and parents and just a lot of information about my drinking. But there were times, even to me, it was pretty clear something's wrong here. You know, you say you're never going to be like Daddy, and this is looking like Daddy. Maybe a time or two has looked worse than Daddy, and you know. So I, I, I need to, to start giving myself some more misinformation about this thing. I have to start hanging with the, you know, that part of the book that Bill talks about, we sought lower companionship. I served as a pretty good lower companion, too. I, you know, but I'm sure there's people start hanging around with me and quit the next day. My God, you know. <laughs> and it was just awful. And I started existing on those two lies that a lot of us live on. No matter how we form it, uh, how we articulate it, I started living on those two basic lies that a lot of us exist on. One was, I'm going to quit. And I started quitting. And when I'd get in trouble and I'd get sick and all these pressures would be on me, I would say I'd never do this again. 
Now, I would say that out loud to you, but the lie wasn't to you. The lie was to me because I believed it. Each time I believed I heard enough, I've hurt you enough, I'm sick enough, I'm in trouble enough. This time it was humiliating enough, I'm not going to do this anymore. I know now and I've known for a long time for an alcoholic to make that statement, that's the emptiest statement in the world. The alcoholic's promise to not drink is the most meaningless thing that can be said. He might as well say, I'm going to jump to the moon. But I would mean it. And it would be the truth. And then time would go on and I would quit. And I would, you know, just, things would start, I'd get back in the big bed and may get my job back and stop being afraid and start answering the telephone and eating and all that kind of stuff and time would rock along and I had to tell myself that other lie. This time it's going to be different. This time I'm only going to drink beer. This time I'm only going to drink at home. Control drinking. You run into somebody's control in their drinking, you have run into an alcoholic, I promise you that. <laughs> Believe me, there ain't never been a non-alcoholic ever in the history of this world that has controlled their drinking. It doesn't occur to them to sit around controlling their drinking. So if somebody says, I've got my drinking under control, you're talking to a middle stage, if not latter stage, alcoholic by then. And I would start controlling it. And that's when I'd say, you know, if I'm a grown man and I'm working, every, well, not every day, I couldn't tell myself I was working there, but by God, I have gainful employment, and who is she to tell me I can sit home and drink? I thought the whole world was sitting home drinking a six-pack of half quarts. <laughs> and anybody that wasn't was henpecked. <laughs> I'd come home with my six-pack of half quarts and plunk it down there, and I'm going to just drink just like everybody else. And I drink my six-pack of half quarts, and by golly, I was right. I'd get up the next morning and do fine. I might not eat breakfast or brush those back teeth or anything like that, but I was fine. I worked all day, and I would say, no wonder. I'd analyze what had gone wrong before, and it was getting on that brown liquor and running out with that gang and this kind of thing, but at home, a six-pack of half quarts, I'm fine. Nobody could deny it. But you know, that night would come where I'd run out of beer before I'd run out of TV to watch. And I'd have to run up to the curb market to get two more to balance out to get me through the night. Little miscalculation. Yeah. No big deal. And she should understand that. There's no magic about six beers exactly. Well, I wouldn't crank the car, nor would I close the door till I'd rolled it down to the bottom of the hill because I, I didn't want to explain all that to her, but I would know <laughs> that I was king of the castle, and I, if I wanted two more beers, I'd go get it, so I'd run up and get it. And it'd be sometime afterwards that I would be in that condition, dirty underwear, and hadn't been to work, scared of the phone, and scared of the front door. Now, I'm not talking about somebody in their 50s. I'm not talking about somebody in their 40s. I'm not talking about somebody in his 30s. I'm a young fellow in my mid-20s, and I'm a bender drinker. I'm drinking around the clock. I'm drinking just like I observed my daddy doing when he was in his 50s and 60s. 
and even I would know at times things are bad here. Now, I had learned too, and I guess I picked this up a hint or two from my father. I had learned, of course, now I've learned terms like detoxification. <laughs> then I was doing it to myself, and I called it tapering off. Didn't have any nurses around, had no doctors around, had no profession. I had to do it all myself. It was just a, it was something to behold. I wish they'd had people come in and observe how I would detox myself back then and, and get myself off these drugs. Used to use beer was my medicine. Couldn't get a hold of any Librium, any of this kind of stuff. And I would sort of walk myself down. Just a, as like I say, it was, just a, it was a scientific thing. I had <laughs> You had to have control. Unfortunately, I told you about my wife Kay. She did not have a scientific head on her shoulders, and she used to confuse tapering off with drinking. <laughs> I don't know if you ever lived like this. It's just, it's just no explaining it to him, you know. And you know, you said you were going to quit drinking yesterday, and uh, well, I, I did. Today, I'm tapering off. What a, one of the hardest things to describe to a layman. Now, I can understand it to a certain degree because there was a time or two there when I'd have a little dosage problem and <laughs> might take on a little too much. Like I say, there's no nurses around here. And it was a few times I'd get plum drunk, tapering off. And, uh, and so I might pull a three-day drunk and then taper off for two more weeks, you see. Well... That's, the jobs begin to become a real problem. When I got sober, I returned to a place I'd been fired from five times. And I'd done a lot of things, and I don't have time to tell you all the things I had done. I'd seen the psychiatrist, I'd done all, the practice a little yoga at one time. Read me a book on yoga. I don't know if you did that. Always too drunk to stand on my head like the one you <laughs> But I, you know, that was going to be my way out little church, marriage counseling with the preacher, and if we had more time, I'd tell you about it. In case you plan on doing any more drinking, I'd want to recommend marriage counseling with the preacher. I'd keep you drunk for another 18 months, man. <laughs> I did all that, and, and, and I had been away. I was working for this crooked company because I'd gotten to that point where crooked companies is all I could work for, and this was a crooked outfit. And they'd sent me out of town. They sent me to St. Louis, as a matter of fact. And I stayed drunk in St. Louis for two weeks, and I came back. And my wife picked me up at the airport and took me home, and I got immediately down to my underwear, which was my drinking uniform, and I was <laughs> tapering off. <laughs> Charming. <Yeah. laughs> And I, she left the house. She did that a lot during that period of time. And she left the house, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and the only reason I can tell you I called Alcoholics Anonymous is just because I'd done so many other things. And nobody would believe those other things anymore, and so I knew I needed to grandstand move. And you've been on them 12-step calls, when you know that's why you out there. You know, you don't hit the door and somebody says, well, you've got any steps I could work. You don't have no kind of, you know. You know and that wasn't the thing, kind of call I was making either, you know. I needed to do something. Now, I, 
believe 98% of that reason for my calling was to get the heat off. Just like yours probably was. But I believe, and I believe this of everybody I call on nowadays. I believe there was 2% real, if not sincerity, real desperation. A real cry for help. And I called, I called the answering service there in Greensboro, you know, and made up some lie to her so she wouldn't know it was me. And, he, and she had a fellow by the name of Bill Inn, who was and is, and by the way, Chick, Chick and I were down at Camp Monroe this past spring. He was there. He goes every year. And Bill Inn called me back, and we began to talk on the phone. And he is about as narrow-minded about tapering off as Kay was. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I mean, this is somebody from A&A headquarters there talking about, you know, aren't you drinking? You know, well, not drinking. I'm tapering off. Taking it in. <laughs> well, you know, he, he, he didn't want to rush to my aid. He knew the kind of condition I was in. I had what I needed. I had a name and a phone number. And so when Kay got back, I was standing there in that dirty underwear, and I was holding that name and the I said, you know, I want you to know I've called the Alcoholics Anonymous down there. And it's proof this is the man's name and number. <laughs> and, you know, that look of hope, you know how they get it. You know, that for the hundredth time, they still want to have hope. <laughs> yeah. He and I agree I'm not ready yet, but by golly, you know. Well, where I am, I, you know. Hold on to this, I said. You know, well, you're drinking like I was drinking, and you, and someone is still there who cares, and you hand them the name and number. Someone might be able to help you with your drinking. You don't have to tell them not to lose it. They'll let the they'll let the youngins go before they'll let that name. Go. So that name and number didn't move anyway. I didn't call him back. I had told him I would, but I didn't. Kay did though. About five or six months later. Now, she had gotten, you know how they get. You know how they get to keep it a secret for a while, you know, and they'd take us down to the zoo or something, you know, try to make it like it's a regular family. And matter of fact, when I called uh, AA that time, talked to Bill Ian, we were planning a beach trip the next day. That was one of the things she had planned. Why is playing stuff like that? We're going to be like a regular family and do things. And they kind of keep it a secret and don't brag about it too much. And then... <laughs> They'll break the ice, tell the preacher or something. It gets easier and easier and easier, you know. And I was accused of just stopping people at the supermarket and saying, come on home, look at my drunk. You know, I just said. <laughs> so she was in that phase where it wasn't any secret any longer. She told my parents and her parents and anybody to listen. So she found herself, so she tells me, one night at one of those desperate times in our houses, and you know what they are. She found herself calling this number. And she found herself with a strange voice, a man she didn't know, and telling him what was going on in our home. Rank stranger. And she found herself, so she tells me, telling for the first time this deal to someone who not only understood, but who offered a solution. And he listened sympathetically like we do to that family member that calls us. But more importantly, he went and got his wife, Lib. And Lib got on the phone and began to tell Kay about this thing called Al-Anon. And back then, it was called uh, the 
AA Women's Auxiliary met on Wednesday night. They called it AA Women's Auxiliary, but they'd got a hold of some of that Al-Anon stuff, and they were practicing not auxiliary, they were practicing Al-Anon. <laughs> I mean, you know, that black belt Al-Anon was already getting in there. And Kay began to change. Now I say, and some of you said you're kind enough to listen to my tape, and you probably heard this on it, because I most of the time will remember to mention this, because Al-Anon's important in my story. If you're drinking and your loved one joins Al-Anon, it probably won't cure your drinking. That's not what it's designed for. It'll break your rhythm, I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> the game changed. The game always changed. Now, you see, this not always the drunk has to get well. Because all those people are sick. You just have to get somebody well to change that game. And she started getting well. I didn't know that she was getting well. But what I was doing, I was witnessing somebody recover from this disease right before my eyes. I credit Al-Anon more than anything else. Anything else other than John Barleycorn itself in the getting me to this program. On June the 2nd, 1967, I'm coming off another one of the drunks. I don't know how many drunks it had been. And this was a less exotic drunk in a lot of ways. I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't in, I was in a lot less trouble. And she turned to me, I can remember, and I'm sitting there in that chair and I'm, you know. And she said, let's call him. And then she was talking about it. She, she died. And I and I, they told her she wasn't supposed to do things for me, but she also knew the state I was in. And you know, getting my finger in one of them holes and running around seven times was beyond my capability. <laughs> so she did the dialing and she handed me the phone and I remember what old Bill said. I remember it as clearly as if it happened this morning. He said, and this was a late hour at night, and he said, are you about ready to throw in the towel now? He knew my story. He knew the story of alcoholism anyway, but he certainly knew through Kay and Liv what was happening in our house. And I said, I sure am. He said, I'll be there in the morning. And he came and made the classic 12-step call. And I spent too long drinking again. I'm going to hurry on along into this sobriety part. And he sat in my living room in that house that Cameron Brown kept trying to get, take back. Yeah, I don't know if you had one of them houses. I still, I'm a homeowner. You know, what I got to do? <laughs> How could I be in trouble? I'm a homeowner. Now, Cameron Brown was trying to catch me to change that. They, <laughs> they were going to make sure that whoever showed up at the courthouse steps owned it real quick. But right then, I was a homeowner, and Bill sat in there, and he did what we do. But let me tell you what he did. He did what we always all try to do in every case, no matter why we're called out there. And we're never called out there for any genuine, real reason, not if an alcoholic's cat called us. But he made the deal that we try to make. I don't care whether we call to borrow money or to talk to the wife or call, you know, call my boss, even on that kind of thing. Call my boss and tell him that I've called you and I've been sick. I hadn't been to work in eight months, but if you'll call, that kind of deal. You know, and, you know, and I'm sure he knew he was on the same kind of mission, but he made that deal. The deal was that I wouldn't take a drink that day and I'd go with him to Alcoholics Anonymous that night. Isn't that what we always try to do? 
I hope that's what we all try to do. I think now with all these fine treatment centers, the first thing we do is say, you got Blue Cross. <laughs> but that's really not what our mission is when we're called as AA member. And it wasn't his. And I agreed. I agreed mainly because it's time for him to leave. <laughs> you know, your attention span's short. You know, he'd been there and been there and been there. You know how slow that gets, and there's time for him to go. So I'd agree to anything, <laughs> any deal he want to make. Because, you know, I knew I was too sick to go to a meeting that night. But if that would shut him up, we could call him later. I'd have Kay call him later. And explain. <laughs> but Kay had witnessed the deal, see. She had her ear on it. She heard that contract. And it wasn't anything to do but us go over there and meet him that night. And I did. And I took my old non-repossessable mercury over there. I had me a 65 mercury. Another little advice, if you're going to do any more drinking and you've got a car, wreck it just enough that the bank won't take it back. <laughs> but not so bad you can't drive it. And that was at Mercury's state. And Mr. Crawford went to his first day A meeting. June the 3rd, 1967. And this is an important thing for me to talk about. Powerful thing. Powerful things going on here tonight. Not so much by what I'm saying, but what's here. It's always here at these meetings. And if you're here and you've not been here before and you can't feel it, sit here and come back till you do. And I walked into that meeting, it was a speaker meeting like this, except much smaller, probably 18 or 20 people there at the old Starmount group. Well, it wasn't an old group then, it was a new group then. And I, you know, feeling just as conspicuous as you do if you're new. Everybody's looking at me, you know, this kind of thing. And I plunked myself down with those 18 or 20 people, and they did all their stuff that they do, this reading and everything. And an old boy got, got up to the podium like I've done tonight, and he told this story we tell. I never tire of the story we tell, but it isn't too different. And one, please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. Side two will continue in just a moment. 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 It's always the miracle of recovery when we hear somebody climb up and, and do it. And he did it. 
And I can't, you know, five minutes after he'd sat down and everybody clapped their hands, I couldn't have told you much, de- much details about what he'd said. I couldn't know who he was. Certainly couldn't remember shortly thereafter where he was from or much about him. But I know two things occurred while he was standing there telling this story. And like I said, I wasn't assimilating. I wasn't putting together all of his sentences and everything, but I understood his message. It was clear as a bell. I knew that he was telling me and those other folks that he had drunk alcohol hopelessly, that he'd come here to this thing we were doing that night and he hadn't been drinking and life was good. And I understood that. And more important than that in the thing that saved my life, the hook, was I believed every word he said, every syllable he spoke. And I hadn't believed anybody or anything in so long I couldn't tell you. I didn't even believe in God. And this old boy that had no reason to have any credibility with me, I believed everything he said. Now, psychologists might say that I was desperate, that I was grasping at any straw, and I'll buy that. That's okay. Most of us in this room call that kind of thing the grace of God. And I was hooked. I was half an AA member that night, just like half an alcoholic 13 and a half, 14 years before. I was hooked on the fellowship. And that's what it has to be, first of all. It has to be the fellowship. When we read the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous, we read, this is a fellowship. That's what has to hook the newcomer. You can't hand somebody that book and say, go home and read this thing and do what it says and then come back. We're going to let you among these people. It has to be the people first. That hope that we heard talked about in this morning's meeting, that has to come first. And everybody came up to me after that. I didn't pick up a chip. You know what I mean? I was going to, you know, I'm not signing any pledges. You know? <laughs> you know, it looks all right to me. But I'm, you know, so I didn't pick up a chip. But they knew I was new and they came up and grabbed me. And let me tell you how, how the things impress you. I know the people see the Lincoln Continentals and the Cadillacs in the parking lot. I hadn't seen that. Let me tell you what got me, the big impression. Every one of these people... <laughs> had a piece of cake, look like a quarter of a pound of cake. Oh, that's the way it seemed. And it was walking down on that cake, you know. (laughs) It'd been years since I could eat cake. You know what I mean? (laughs) And they'd come up to me and they'd be spitting cake crumbs, you know. Kevin that glad to see and I'd slop down that coffee and I couldn't hold that coffee and cram that cake in there. And that was my first ambition. It wasn't to get a Buick, it's to eat me some cake like that. <laughs> and if you start off that way, if you knew, it doesn't take long. In a few days, you can have you a big piece of cake, <laughs> big old cup of coffee, and grab one of them new cars, spit some crumbs on it. <laughs> Tell him to keep coming back. John Wayne or something. I got hooked on that and I did keep coming back. You know, they say, pick the winners. The winners picked me. They surrounded me. Took me up and down the road with them. These were the people that got me interested in going to a lot of meetings, but it got me interested in going to retreats and conferences and things like this above the group level. These are the people that, let me tell you something, if you're new and you don't have to be around long, 
and you're wondering who's got it and who ain't got it, this is no big secret. We can tell it. You've been around here for two weeks and you know who's got this thing and who hasn't. And I used to want to interview people, you see. I wanted to go, you know, I needed some secret. <laughs> and I wanted to get up close enough to you because I knew who had it. And I wanted, that, I wanted that look in my eye and I wanted that success that you carried. And so if you'd sit over in the corner with me after meeting and stay long enough, I, I would talk to you and listen to you. And then one day when I had your confidence, you'd pull me over to the side and you'd say, Crawford, you know these steps and everything we talk about? They work. But us real pros bury a dead cat in the backyard when there's a full moon. I knew there was something they weren't telling everybody, you know. never came along. I didn't get any of them tips like that. It seemed to be what they were talking about is what they were doing. So when I couldn't pick their brains and get the, that kind of magic, I started emulating their actions. That's amazing how that works. I started doing what they were doing. And these people, it seemed like in the group, and they were older than me. As I said, I was 29 years old when I came here, and these men were much older. And they flattered me very much with their time and attention. And I, in looking back, I know they were agonizing over these steps and wondering about this program. It seemed like they knew everything. And anything that they did, I copied. I began to copy and do it with them. Remember making my first talk. I remember chairing my first group. I remember making that first 12-step call. And I had the kind of sponsor then that didn't ask. If I thought the guy would be motivated or did I want to go in this particular neighborhood, he would just say, I'm going to come by and pick you up. A few minutes, we're going to go to the Greenwich Hotel. The Greenwich Hotel is the rottenest place you've ever seen in your life. Nobody ever sobered up in the Greenwich Hotel. He would repeatedly take me up at the Greenwich Hotel. Talk to them drunk. I'd go. And nobody ever got sober. But it's like we always hear, I stayed sober and he stayed sober every time. And we became pros in the 12th step. And I remember old Sam who got sober six weeks after I did. And I picked up my one-year chip and he picked up his, his one-year chip six weeks after me. He got on some heart medication or some tranquilizer for a heart deal and, and got drunk again. And old Rupert was calling, my sponsor Rupert at that time was calling the shots. And he was sending me and old Homer over on shifts to detox Sam on liquor. And I'd go over there and relieve Homer. And Homer would come over there and relieve me. And, record, and Rupert was on the phone. That's the way we did it then, calling the shots and making sure we changed it to proper shift time and gave Sam an ounce and a half every hour of liquor. And I came over there one shift change, and there was Homer sitting in the yard looking at Sam sitting up on his front stoop. And I went up there, and I was sort of in the twilight, and I looked at Homer's face, and dark circles was under his eyes this big. And he was like, just warned, just like he'd, he'd knocked out. I said, Homer, you look terrible. He looked at me, he said, Crawford, you look terrible. <laughs> Sam looked great. <laughs> he was sitting up there singing Rock of Ages. Up on the front of Sort of clear skinned, you know, this kind of thing. And I said, Homer, it occurred to you, we've been keeping Sam drunk for a week. And me and you about to die. <laughs> Let's go home. And so we did. And we were scared to tell Rupert, but we went on home. And we made a lot of mistakes like that in, in the 12-step calls or the sponsorship or whatever the fastest thing, but we stayed sober. 
Good things have happened in Alcoholics Anonymous and bad things do too. Real bad things. And I don't have time to enumerate the bad things nor the good things. I just know this in my life. That when things happen, they happen to change us and they happen to change us for the better. As long as we hang in here and stay with this program. I believe that the first bottom that we have is that booze bottom when it hurts so bad enough to hold on to it we take the risk of dropping it and believe what these people say. But I think there's a thousand bottoms coming up for us of other things that we're holding on just as tightly to. Things we're just as sick about. And we'll only release them when it hurts so bad to hold them. And one of my favorite stories which is just easy to tell and it's not one of the biggest things that ever happened in my life. It's just an easy illustration. I've been sober for two years and Three quarters. Doing a hell of a job in AA. You know, just a... I told somebody last night, just call her an AA poster child. You know, just... <laughs> sharing meetings and talking, going to the big book, or the Sunday night discussion group and quoting the big book. And I'm hanging around there one day on the job and the boss called me in and fired me. Didn't ask me if I was chairman of my home group or if I was making coffee. He fired me because I wasn't doing any work for him. He, I wasn't. That kind of fella. You probably work for that kind of boss. And, he, and part, of the, part of the job was a car. And he took the car. I like being in jail. I had my one call I could make. And I called Kay to come pick me up out there at the corner and I walked out to the corner of that building 11 o'clock in the morning and stood on the corner of that lot on Bessemer Avenue and waited for Kay to come pick me up. Fired. Two years and three quarters sober. And out of, yeah. And the thought occurred to me to give you the kind of idea, the kind of ego I had and still do, that people passing by there would probably guess I was fired. <laughs> So you know what I did? I looked employed as hell. I mean, I checked my watch, you know, I kind of had that look like that kind of thing, you know. And that's kind of head, that was kind of what you folks were dealing with. And still are to a certain extent. I aspired, didn't have any idea where I was going to go to work. Two children, a wife, and a mortgage. And my biggest fear is some guy would ride by and punch his wife, so I bet that guy's fired. Of course, she, she picked me up and I cried on her shoulder and what are we going to do and all that stuff. And I, and I tell that story because it's funny, but I tell it too, or more so, because that was the thing. I hated that job and they, they should have fired me. I should have quit a long time ago. I wasn't doing anything. And that had to happen for me to open doorways employment-wise that have led to things beyond my wildest dreams. And I don't mean I've gotten rich or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just as far as the job satisfactions and me feeling good about me. Had this not happened, it would not have started the process. I don't mean the next week, but over a period of time. And that's the story of my life in this program. And I believe it's your story in this program, too, that things like that come along. 
and we drop that rock that uh, we just hold on to so tightly when it hurts so bad to hold it and it opens the doorway for the change that we must make. And what we resist more than anything is change. How many times as a, as a, in my work have I talked to a wife who's been beat up every night? Beat up. Sometimes to the point of death. And the fear of the unknown of leaving is so much greater than the familiar of an untenable situation, at least in most of our minds, that she can't leave. And I can understand her. Because I can do that very same kind of thinking process right now. If you hang around this program, if we hang around this program and we do what the winners do, good things happen. And we begin to learn what this program's all about. And we don't have to learn what it's all about in the first day or the first week or even the first year. We just have that hope we talked about and then that faith and then that trust we talked about this morning. And then the true essence of Alcoholics Anonymous comes through to us. And if you're like me, you might be sitting someplace sometime with somebody. And you might have your ears open and listening to this somebody because they're hurting worse than you. And this is what they'd advise me to do. To be generous with me. And there were times I didn't want to be generous with me. There's times when my problems were too great. I didn't want to help somebody else. I wanted help. But my sponsor would say, no, we've got to go call on this drunk. And I would say, you know, try to reach me. Try to help me. I don't have anything left to help someone else. But I would do it. And I, you know, I, I would be in that situation where someone who's more afraid or more in pain than me, and I'm listening to them, and a new and beautiful feeling overcame me. And I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know until sometime later, looking back on that for just a brief period of time, a couple of seconds, I cared more about someone else than I did me. And that's brand new. I'm not talking about from the drinking. I'm talking about from the day I was born. That was a brand new feeling. I ain't never cared more about you than I did me. And for that two seconds when it happened the first time, it was the greatest relief I'd ever known from any alcohol or any other substitute I'd ever used. And I, I learned real quick that the next time that feeling lasted a little bit longer and the next time a little bit longer. And any time I need that, it's available to me. And it's available to you too. That is the essence of alcoholics. Anonymous. Anytime I pray for something, anytime, you know, I need some pressure off at work, anytime I need my wife to change for her to be bearable to live with, each time I'm so terrified about finances or my health or whatever, and I pray so hard for him to fix that, he sends me a drunk every time. <laughs> Time for this drunk. I'm trying to get my finances straightened out. <laughs> and it works every time. Everything that's good in my life, everything worth showing you, everything of value, is a direct result of this program, nothing else. I don't, just like those old-timers in my early days didn't have any tricks up my sleeve other than what you hear here and what you see here. And the knowledge of that is something that I'm powerfully grateful for. I love you all and thank you.